On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you today? I am doing great, Lance. This episode was really compelling. We made a new friend, and we spoke to a fellow named Douglas McGregor, and he is known as the Geographic Profiler on Twitter. It's at GeoProfiler, and he's got a great company and uh, website here. It's McGregorAndAssociates.com. Lance, what does he do? He runs this company, McGregor and Associates, which is a forensic behavioral consulting firm. And they offer open source investigation support, geographic profiling, incident management systems, and mapping services for accurate, timely, and effective solutions. That is coming directly from his website because it's very tough for me to put into words exactly what he does. I know it's important. He'll essentially look at the area in which a person goes missing or a crime is committed, and he'll he'll work from that area, and he'll put together the factors that brought someone to that area. And honestly, Mora's case is a good example of it, like what she was doing there, why she got there, how that's outside of her normal routine, and what he can do with geographic profiling, I didn't know existed until speaking with him. I, I kind of heard about it on, on the peripheral, but I didn't think that it was as important a factor in a, in a cold case as, as much as it is. It's really compelling. Um, I, I do remember reading uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and they did some of it in there just to try to kind of tell where the Golden State Killer might have lived based on his victims. And they were really close in, in some uh, cases. So that's kind of, I think, the idea here. Um, and also this open source investigation is just as interesting, really, uh, because he will investigate web pages and social media profiles and things like that, which is uh, quite useful these days. Yeah, that's like the layers that go a little deeper than what, um, you know, a geographic targeting would do, you know, like that triangulating uh, that you spoke of with I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Uh, I didn't realize how many layers there were. I didn't realize exactly what open source investigation was with um, looking through the social media, placing someone at a certain location and working backwards from there or filling in the, the gaps from there, I should say. Yeah, it's really fascinating work. So I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow Douglas on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. Give us five stars. Tell your friends.
welcome to the podcast, Doug. How are you today, Doug? I'm good, guys. How are you? Oh, we're doing really, really well. Uh, every day something new happens in uh, this true crime community, and out of the blue, we, we meet someone like you. And I didn't even know what you do existed, and in the first sentence when we spoke on the phone, in the first sentence I was blown away and hooked. So um, thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for, uh, for coming on and taking time out of your day to join us. Oh, my pleasure. That was a that was a gigantic tease for the audience there <laughs> by saying I'm just blown away by what you do. Yeah, so you, you work uh, or you run Douglas McGregor and Associates. And so tell us what that is. So that's my own business. Uh, I started it in the last couple of years. And uh, what I do is I do forensic behavioral sciences and I focus mainly on um, OSINT, which is about 70% of my business. So OSINT is open source intelligence. Uh it includes cyber intelligence, uh, social media intelligence as well. Um, open source intelligence is any form of information that's readily available or uh, semi-available to the public. Uh, so that's about 70% of my business right now. And then I also do uh, geographic profiling, which uh, is it's a subset of criminal profiling or offender profiling, investigative sciences, however you want to call it. It focuses on the different components such as spatial, temporal, environmental, and the geography um, associated with human behavior. Well, I like Lance, I'm fascinated and already hooked too. Um, so t tell us a little bit more about your background. Where did this, uh, this business and this knowledge come from? Uh, my background actually did a, uh, my undergrad was in political science and international relations. Um, from there, I went and I did a master's down in just outside of Washington, D.C., in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, it was the it was Missouri State University. They had their department there. And it was a master's of science in defense and strategic studies. So basically, you know, military science, intelligence, counterterrorism. From there, we had we had a number of guest speakers come in. Some of the guest speakers were on, you know, terrorism and terrorist profiling. And that's where I kind of got into the behavioral sciences side of it. And ever since then, I've been doing behavioral sciences. So you know, I've done, uh, I've done academics, I've done schooling and professional courses in geographic profiling, crime scene analysis, um, internet investigations, victimology. So just been all over the map since then focusing on that. Okay. So geographic profiling, um, that's the one thing that really stood out when we spoke. Can you explain that a little bit or a lot? Explain it a lot if you want. Sure. So like I said, it's a subset of criminal of offender profiling. Um, it's focuses on the, uh, you know, the spatial, the temporal, the environmental and the uh, geographic behavior of, you know, of people. But, you know, you're focusing mainly on uh, a victim or a missing person or an offender. Um, traditionally, geographic profiling, it, 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 it looks at things like you know, buffer zones, and it looks at things like uh, distance decay. Um, it was actually started by a Canadian, uh, Dr. Kim Rosmo. And, uh, you know, since then, it's, he's progressed it quite a bit, as, um, as have other individuals like David Cantor in the, in the UK as well, uh, through his investigative uh, um, psychology program. When I look at geographic profiling, I... I tend to prefer the term geo-environmental profiling. I find geographic 
profiling. I just find that term is is very is very linear and just makes people think of just geography. Where, like I said, I I take into other I take into account other things like time and space and environment. Okay, and um, and is that mostly to like find a missing person or where a missing person could have could have gone or just? Absolutely. So I use it for missing persons cases. I've used it. I've applied it to uh, fugitive cases. Um, I've applied it to to homicides. You know where the offender might live, reside, where the offender kind of uh, where their activity space was. To victims of you know potential homicides. So I've uh, I've applied it in quite a different uh, number of respects, and it's uh, it's fairly versatile. And how have you applied this in uh, Maura Murray's case? So Maura Murray's case was just I haven't I haven't officially worked obviously Maura Murray's case. I mean there's a there's an interest there because it's such a you know it's such a big case, a popular case. Um, you're both of you and uh, other individuals have really brought this case kind of out into the spotlight. Uh, and it's great because, you know, the public gets involved. Um, and while, while I hate to have any person missing or a victim of anything, um, this case does provide myself with, um, information to, you know, to do research, to help individuals in the future because so many people are involved and there's just so many people bringing information in. That's part of the reason I got involved in the case. I also know that area, you know, decently enough uh you know why while a lot of people from vermont come across canada to drink because you know the drinking age in quebec is 18 uh a lot of canadians go down to vermont to ski you know in stowe sugarbush jp uh smugglers notch so i've been down in that area i've skied at i've skied at stowe i think yeah i took a family a family vacation to stowe back in i don't know maybe 2002 uh, so just I just I've been to the area. Um, so just uh, those different elements kind of brought my interest to the case. And I thought I would apply the geographic profiling on and just see what I could, you know, how I could apply it to more Murray's case based on the information that yourselves and the public have put out there. Great. Well, I guess, um, what, what do you think? I mean, where, where do you think Mora could be based on your, um, your geographic profiling? Uh, so when I lo- looked at the case, it's, uh, there's, there's kind of two ways that, uh, you know, two, ty- two ways that people go missing. Um, and uh, this is what I put in the profile there. One, you know, someone goes missing while doing a routine activity. And the other is someone goes missing while not, while doing a non-routine activity. Um, if someone goes missing dur- during a routine activity, you know, you kind of think of uh, Jennifer Cassie or Molly Tibbetts, uh, you know, jogging or going to work. Those individuals completely vanish. You know, they just they were doing something and they do every day and they just vanish. Uh, in Moore Murray's case, of course, she disappeared. You could say she vanished, but she wasn't she was doing a non-routine activity it was out of her normal routine um everything you know kind of on the day of a few things leading up to that day were just out of uh, were, you know not routine for her and while she disappeared she was she was in the process process of doing something when she disappeared so it wasn't routine for her um and that makes a big difference because if somebody goes missing, just vanishes during uh, while doing a routine activity, 
there's a greater chance that something, you know, sinister or criminal happened to them. However, if somebody is doing a non-routine activity, it means they were planning for something, when something happened, if something happened. So the key to Moore Murray, in, 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 at least in my eyes, is what was she planning? What was she planning for or planning to do? And that will help you lead to the answer as to you know, why she disappeared or went missing, you know, whatever, whatever her fate was. Is that where you would start typically? Uh, you, you'd look at whether it was a routine or non-routine activity before you uh, apply your technique? Exactly. Okay. I would absolutely look whether it was routine or non-routine. Yes. And so what's the next step in your process? Uh, the next step is just is gathering as much information as you can, um, you know, spatial, temporal, geographic, environmental, uh, and, and plotting all that information out. Uh, I generally use Google Earth. It's just quick. It's simple. It's easy. It's clean. Um, it's very detailed. And I plot all that information out and I start to you know, connect the dots, linkage analysis, cross-referencing, seeing how it, how human behavior and the different aspects of her disappearance, seeing you know, the linkages I can make between the two. That's what you meant when you said linkages. You're you're talking about. I'm not. I'm not using Mora specifically just for the uh, sake of this explanation. If someone leaves to go do something and you find out that they are an avid skier, then their destination would make sense if they're headed to a mountainous region, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, human behavior really plays in here because, you know, someone might say, oh, this person just left the house on Friday night and disappeared. And, you know, you could just walked out of the front door and disappeared. But you might look at it and say, well, it was, you know, it was 10 degrees out and I'm talking Celsius here. I'm Canadian, obviously, uh, and pouring rain. Well, why would somebody walk out in the pouring rain and disappear? So all these different environmental factors, uh, time, they all influence human behavior. Well, I think that's really interesting. You've already got me hooked um, with the uh, she was doing something she doesn't normally do. And so that that means that some things are automatically ruled out because of that. Um, now, I noticed here that you mentioned Atatash Mountain Village in Bartlett being a possible destination for her. How did you come to that? Uh, I just did some research as to where she was heading. And I think I came across, I mean, you guys know all the details, you know, as do many people in the public way better than I do. Um, and I think I came across that she was, she had in the past with her family or growing up or whatever, she had skied at, uh, or stayed at Atatash Mountain resort or village. I'm not sure the exact name. I know Atatash is the name of the mountain mountain and there's different resorts in that area that use the name Atatash in their title. Uh, but she had stayed, I think someone corrected and said it was Atatash mountain resort. I you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I just looked at, you know, the, uh, the information as to where she had, um, kind of looked up places to stay where she had previously been and where she might be headed. And it kind of looks like Bartlett and possibly that resort um, or at least an area, uh, a hotel resort in that area would have been her likely destination. Okay. And the fact that she gets into the accident in the location she 
um, got into that accident. Do you take into account any sort of influence, whether or not she was under the influence of something? Does that fall into any any um, method that you have? Do, does Does that fall into any sort of category for you? Being under the influence of drugs or alcohol greatly affects how we act when we're missing or when we're lost, more specifically. A missing person's case is different especially somebody who's lost, uh, depending on their age, we all act different spatially depending on our age. Uh, for instance, if a child is lost in the woods, they'll walk straight, but an adult is more logical and they'll find the path of least resistance, for example. When you add in being under the influence of drugs or alcohol, again, that affects how we think. I mean, you just think, most people have been intoxicated once in their life and they did something that the next day they're like, well, why did I do that? You know, it really affects how we, how we behave. I don't know, but for me, that would come into effect after the crash, the crash itself, whether she was sober or whether she was under the influence, you know, she was driving and she crashed. It's how that affected her after that is what would uh, play the largest factor for me. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, I mean, she was driving. She had a destination. She was heading in that direction. Maybe she was sober and it was bad weather uh, or she just missed the turn or maybe she was under the influence and she crashed because of that. Uh, but she did crash her vehicle and her vehicle no longer worked. But now it's her decision making after that that is affected by whether she's under the influence, under the influence or not. Um, if you're under the influence, for example, you might abandon your vehicle because you want to evade law enforcement. There's a greater need to abandon a vehicle under the influence because you don't want to get charged with being under the influence while driving. Uh, so a lot of people will abandon their vehicle. However, if somebody crashes and they're not under the influence, they'll generally stay there, wait for police, and you know they may get a ticket, they may not. Uh, so that has an effect. After she leaves the vehicle, it also has an effect. What route does she take? Does she follow the main road? Let's just say for sake of argument, she's going to Atatash. Does she follow the main roads or does she, because she's under the influence, think it's a better idea to hitchhike, take a, an alternate path to Atatash? Maybe there's a hiking path through the woods that she thinks is a shortcut. So just being under the influence can greatly affect how we make our decisions. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And and do you have any uh, sort of uh, technique that you apply to the circumstances beforehand? Because when we talk about Moore's case, a lot of the times there's two different uh, schools of thought. One is it doesn't matter what happened beforehand uh, personally in her life. And the other school of thought is, well, the reason why she was there in the first place was because of something that happened beforehand that that brought her there. Have you had that experience with any other cases? And how do you what do you apply in that circumstance? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I look into the first thing I do when I get any case is I just I read absolutely everything I can on it. The only thing I avoid is I avoid theories. Uh, I just look for facts and information that is accurate or as accurate as as accurate as possible. You know, I take into account witnesses to say, oh, I think I, I'm pretty sure I saw that person. I don't take it as fact, but I consider it. Um, the only thing I try to avoid are theories 
when I'm looking at a case. And I look at information leading right up to the event. Uh, for example, I just completed a pretty lengthy geographic profile and I had to look at, you know, the 10 years prior to the event as well. So it, it, it's, it's very, you know, case specific and situational. But for Maura's case, I was mainly interested in, in the time I did put into it, I was mainly interested in her um, activities kind of the day of and, you know, the day or two before. Yeah, specifically which uh, activities? Uh, the activities I was mainly interested in were her activities a day of where she was uh, researching places to go it, because it showed it showed a plan. It showed a destination. And it wasn't just one place. It, it, she was shopping around. And why she was shopping around, I mean, there, there's different reasons why you might do that. You know, you're looking for a good deal. You're looking for a place that'll take cash instead of credit card because some places still will. So there's, there's different reasons you might shop around, but she was shopping around for a destination. Uh, so I was interested in that. I was also interested in how she, you know, she told her, her professor at school or emailed more than one professor. I'm not sure that she was going to be gone for a week. So that gives a time frame. you know, now being gone for a week, I, when I saw that, I thought of one of two things. Either she's actually being gone for a week, and by telling the professors, no one's going to call her parents to find her, or it gave her a head start for whatever she was planning on doing. So those are the two kind of scenarios I had going in my head when she said she was going to be gone for a week. You know, some other things of interest were the, were the uh, kind of the shape that the law enforcement described her room in which is kind of, I mean, that goes back to, you know, spatial. Her, that's, that's her, like, that's her place. You know, her room is her purse is her place. A, a place is somewhere personal, you know, your bedroom, your car, your work area, uh, a space is more abstract. So, I mean, that was her place. And the way they described it, there were boxes, you know, there was a letter on top. Again, I take it with a grain of salt because are they just giving out you know, how they interpret the information or is that actually what it looked like? So, uh, but I take those things into account. Okay. That's super interesting. You said um, the space and the place are different. So the space is more where her head's at. Is that what you're saying? No, a space is more of an abstract idea. So like I said, your place is your living area uh, that you have control over. So you have control over what's in your vehicle, what's in your bedroom, what's in your workplace, uh, what's in your home gym, for instance. Um, a space is more something abstract. So a space is like, uh, you know, your street, your neighborhood, your, you know, your your office building. It's something that, you know, that you're familiar with, but you don't have direct control over. I see. Okay. So it's, yeah, exactly. So it's the, the thing that you're not personalized to. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. Um, so what, what, um, and you probably said this, but I just didn't catch it. What is the term you'd use for her state of mind? For her state of mind? Yeah. When applying your techniques. Her, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's tough to say exactly where her state of mind is. You know, that's, uh, more from a, you know, a, a psychology perspective, which I have a little background in, but by no means am I, am I a psychologist, but from the the from what I look at, I would say her state of mind is 
that she's, you know, that she's planning to leave. She has a plan. She has a plan in mind. I would, I wouldn't call it abstract. I'd call it a little more than that. I, I would say it was a, you know, it was a defined plan, but there were still aspects to it that, you know, need to be put in place, like where she was going to stay, that kind of thing. Um, and I think she had a time frame that she was working in. Interesting. A time frame. Okay. Because of the week uh, for the emails? Yes. The week of the email, you know, saying that she was going to be gone for a week. In my profile there that I put on Twitter, I put that there were two reasons that somebody abandons a vehicle. Uh, one of those being to evade law enforcement and the other one to be uh, being to seek help. Uh, there's actually a third reason as well. Um, I mean, you know, you could sit here and come up with reasons all day long why somebody abandons a vehicle. Uh, but most of those other reasons fall into the third category, which I just didn't expand on in, my, in that one page profile. And that's that's time. You know, uh, a lot of people will abandon a vehicle because of time. So let's just say you're on your way to a work, an important work meeting. You get a flat tire. Well, you leave your vehicle, you come back later. You're heading to a wedding and your car breaks down and you hit a deer. I don't know. So you leave your car and you come back later. So it's a time, it's a time issue. And that also could have been a factor for Mora as well. If she had to be at a specific place at a certain time to meet somebody, um, then, and let's just say it was hypothetically, it was in Atatash, uh, and she crashed, you know, in Haverhill, that's quite a distance to make it on foot. So if there's a big, if there's, if she has to be there at a certain time, that could be a very big factor in her behavior afterwards, uh, especially if she didn't get cell reception in that area and she couldn't contact the person and tell them she's going to be, you know, quite late. Right. And that would have been true if she was meeting someone at Atatash. And I just want to add that Atatash um, is about a, an hour traveling distance away from the crash site still. So, so it's interesting that Mora, you know, if that's accurate, and, and Fred Murray himself, uh, Mora's dad, has said that she was heading to Bartlett. So that's not completely out of the realm of possibility. In fact, that's probably the most widely accepted idea of what town she was headed to is Bartlett. Um, but but it's interesting that she still has a ways to travel. Yes. And I think when I plotted it, I think it was something like 16 hour walk or something like that. So, you know, it's a long ways to walk. And the alternative is to is to hitchhike because I doubt there was any, you know, taxis out in that area. So and when you mentioned that Mora didn't have any cell service that could influence uh, her decisions after that, how does being under the influence of alcohol factor into that as well? Meaning, does it add more anxiety? Does does she get more anxious? Does she stop thinking clearly about maybe I could knock on someone's door and just use their, their landline? Um, and does that put her further out of a radius that you might have uh, unofficially drawn? Yeah, I, I think all those things are true. Um, it's very tough to say how somebody will react under the influence of alcohol. You know, some people will react relatively normal. Some people, you know, you won't even recognize who they are um, in terms of behavior. Um, for Mora, she could quite, if she was under the influence of alcohol, uh, she could could have quite possibly, you know, not seeked assistance from the from the houses, from the homes that were right around the crash because you know, she was worried that they might call the police and she was still on site. Um, and, but she could very well, you know, seek assistance from a house kind of down the road a couple miles. In terms of 
using her cell phone. And again, I know they said that, I know I read that there was no cell phone reception in that area, but again, there may have been, there may not have been, it may be patchy, you know, driving through those areas. I've driven through there and there's, you know, you, it, it comes and goes, you lose it and you get it back as you go through the hills and mountains, but could being under the influence, uh, kind of alter her behavior in terms of that. Yes. I mean, you know, she could figure that, Hey, if she goes to high ground, she might get a cell signal and looking for individuals lost in the, in the wilderness or very remote areas, uh, like where Mora was, it's, it's really changed over the last 20 years. You know, 20 years ago, cell phones weren't a thing. People got lost. They went to low points. They followed tree lines. They went down to creek beds. And that generally left, uh, led them back out to roads. So, you you know, 20 years ago, you would look for somebody in, in a low point. These days, however, with cell phones, people getting lost in the woods actually generally go to high points because they're trying to get that cell signal back. So whether she was under the influence of, or not, there is a possibility that she still could have gone to a high point to f- try and find that cell signal. That's an interesting point. Um, good. I know when we spoke to Rick Graves um, a couple of years ago, Lance, they, they said that they actually didn't check high points. They said that they only checked low points because they were looking for um, you know, a, a body. They, they didn't have that meant that same mentality. And you said 20 years ago, yeah, you're yeah, 16 years ago. We're talking about, so yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that is really interesting. And, and this is what we're doing lately is really, um, really getting to the, the, the core of things, really pulling back as many layers as we can. It might, it might feel like it's uh, irrelevant, on the surface, but the more you talk about it, the more it might lead to something else, which I think is one of the main reasons why we're having you on is because it's making us think about all of these other factors that we really wouldn't have thought about before. Like what, where you would walk, where you would search for somebody who, who is walking and, and the factors that go into that, you know, alcohol, cell service, uh, their anxiety level, level, whether they hit their head on the car, you know, on the steering wheel or, or the windshield or something. And that, that takes me back to old articles that were written uh, very close to uh, the time of the disappearance or very close to the time right after the disappearance about Mora. And is that something that you start with as well? Do you go back and look at um, an article that interviewed like Butch Atwood, for example, or Faith Westman? And even, even more than that, do you look at police uh, dispatch logs just to get a sense of the type of person there who's calling in the accident or the, um, the response time of the, of the police. So I just threw like four questions at you at once and I apologize, but it's, you know, what do you look, what do you look at um, as far as like old articles and police dispatch reports? I ask when I, when, when I'm asked to do a geographic profile, I try and get as much information as possible. Now that's not to say I'm going to look at all that information. You know, I try to focus on, you know, the spatial, environmental, temp, uh, temporal, time, and geographic. Uh, so it does take a lot of filtering, but I, I scan through all those transcripts if I can. It, I mean, it depends how much there is. If there's, you know, 50 hours worth, it's kind of tough. But I do scan through as much as I can because that little tiny detail, you know, could be the key to changing the search pattern or could. Uh, where she might have gone or the route she might have taken just one little piece of information from one person. I also, when I do my searches, I go back 
like you said, I always go back to the time of the event because every case that I work, if you read news articles from the time of the event and then, you know, 2004 and 2020, things change, details change. And it might not be noticeable to somebody that's just kind of browsing through the article out of interest. But when you're looking for those really specific details, those details change over 16 years, especially when they interview those people again and again. And it's not their fault. You know, I don't remember, I have no idea what I was doing 16 years ago. So um, I absolutely, I, I do go back and try to read as many articles as I can from that time. And the other aspect of what you do um, is uh, more internet and, and computer forensics. Is that, did I get that right? Yes, I, I wouldn't call it, uh, it's not, you know, your traditional computer or IT forensics. I do open source intelligence. So it's, you know, collecting information uh, and turning that into usable intelligence. So, you know, just in its simplest form, if uh, if the two of you are, you know, doing a, uh, a documentary or writing a book, and you need to know the background information on this person or this person's business, what they've, where they've worked, their whole background, their life. That's the kind of information that I can find for you. Um, what about like uh, online behaviors or anything like that? Is that does that come into what you do? Definitely, and and I mean that's a big part of uh, social media intelligence is going through somebody's social media and looking at their activities and their and their behaviors online. I mean. You have to you have to kind of know what you're looking at and you have to have a baseline because how I mean, as you too probably see it every single day on Twitter, you know, different platforms, the way people behave online is not necessarily how they behave in person. I don't buy that. <laughs> you know, and we, we all know that, you know, someone's really tough online, but in person, they're the first person to back down if you if you confront them. Uh, so you have to be able to filter that material out focus on the behaviors the online behaviors on social media that they are not intentionally trying to get across you know oh interesting the online behaviors on social media that they're not intentionally trying to get across like give me give us an example of that because i think i know what you're talking about but i need an example to, to fully formulate my my thought right so you know, somebody on their Twitter account or Facebook account, they may uh, intentionally try to show that they are a specific type of person or have a specific personality trait. Or let's say they're intentionally trying to show people that they live a rich life, but they don't. So they're posing with flashy cars and they're posing in front of flashy clubs and they're taking those pictures and they're putting them on social media. You know, that's intentionally trying to show people what you want them to see but unintentional would be pictures of you involved with money or involved with expensive cars or clubs but it's not intentionally out there in your face trying to show you what you're doing so it's just it's just that you know are they is this who they want me to think they are or is this just who they are but they're yeah is this just who they are and they're not trying to kind of you know uh emphasize it that's really interesting. Um, I like that a lot. And so you get contracted by people to do that? Yes. Yeah. So like I said, open the open source intelligence is 
probably about 70% of my business. And, yeah. you know, whether they're somebody's writing a book or a TV program or yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I was just, I was just going to ask uh, why, what, what would the terms be? What were the, what are the reasons why someone would contact you to look into uh, certain accounts? Uh, it's, it saves people tremendous amounts of time. I bet. Um, it, you know, if you need information on something and, and uh, I'm kind of glossing over here, but if, if you want to, for instance, if I, if you ask me to look into one person, that's a minimum of 10 hours to look into that one person. You know, that's kind of what, that's what I set aside to look into just one person. So if you're, if for whatever program or book or article or podcast somebody might be doing, if they want information on one person, it's going to take me about 10 hours of time. And that's 10 hours of time. I've just saved that person. So it, it's, it's very lengthy and it's very tedious. You know, I might spend 10 hours going through social media and find nothing. It's a very, very tedious process. And, you know, a lot of times when I find information, for example, let's say I find a critical piece of information uh, on Tim, you know, I didn't find it on Tim's Facebook. I found it on Tim's friends, you know, sister's Facebook. And it was a picture of Tim in this place. So now I have that. So it, it's, it's very, it's very tedious work. And the Mora Murray community specifically is uh, kind of wild with the online activity. Is that partly what led you to this uh, community? Yeah, there was just a lot of talk about it. Uh, I think that's kind of what drew me in at the beginning. And I just wanted to, I wanted to see, you know, what the case was about. I mean, it had already, it was already a very, it was already really big before I even started to look at it. So I was just interested and I tried to research as many missing persons cases as I can for my own work and to improve what I do. And the cases that have more information are obviously better for me to do that. If it's uh, if there's a missing person and there's just one newspaper article, you know, that doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really help me with my research, but having a case this big, it does. And To go back real quick on um, the social media aspect of it, have you ever looked into a case and you've discovered behaviors of people online that led to them being responsible for a particular crime? Uh, not directly, no. Okay, but but you have you you've often looked for that, or or occasionally have looked for for situations like that. I've I've used information online and through social media to apply to my geographic profiling. It, it may have indirectly led to. Uh, showing that they were responsible for a crime, but I haven't found anything directly that linked, you know, oh, they have this on social media, so they committed this. For my open source intelligence work, I don't provide any theories. I don't provide, all I do is provide the information for the client to then use it as they wish. So when we're talking about the situation, uh, like Maura's situation, where she's in the process of doing something outside of her normal routine, if she was followed by someone who you know had 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 been on her tail since uh, Massachusetts, they're also going outside of their control zone as well. So she's now outside of her control zone. They're outside of their control zone. Do they gain more power, um, like internally, because now it's sort of fair game, or do they start acting a little bit more irrational? Uh, because they are also out of their their comfort or their control zone. I think 
in ter- in terms of uh, you know the control zone, I don't think Mora was outside of her control zone. I think Mora was fairly familiar with that area, at least from what I've read. Um, you know, she has you know she grew up. She went to the the Adatash Mountain. She's been to uh, Jigger Johnson Campground growing up. She wanted to climb. There was another mountain in the area there she wanted to climb. I think she was fairly familiar with the area. If she had been, if she had been followed by somebody, I do think that it would be it, it would be rare for somebody to follow her outside of their control zone because, you know, just using that word, they lose control. So now they've followed her, let's just say from from her school. They followed her all the way there they're in unfamiliar ground, unfamiliar territory. You know, even if, first of all, you're following somebody, they're in a car, a vehicle. How do you, how do you, first of all, how do you get to them? You know, do you make the vehicle crash? Do you wait till they stop? So how do you make that first initial encounter? And then second, you're in unfamiliar territory. So now what do you do with them? And we all get, humans get very, some of us get anxious or uncomfortable uh, in unfamiliar territory, but we're, we are all more comfortable in in areas that we know. So our activity space, which is where we normally interact, or our awareness space, which is kind of that area just outside of that that we have a you know a good mental image of. But once we get into that unfamiliar territory, we it's it's tough to it's um, it changes all our activities because we just you don't you're not comfortable in that space and you're not comfortable with the landmarks and the infrastructure and the roadways so i think it would be a little unusual for someone to follow her that far do you think uh anything in your profile uh ha- has accounted for potentially some missing time so if there's a period of missing time in my profile i'll i'll take it under consideration if if there's some information for that missing time so if there's an area the person might have been in Maybe we don't know what they were doing, but at least we know where they were. Um, for instance, I would take that into consideration, but I won't fill that time with a theory. So if we have no idea what the person was doing for this one hour, I won't put in there, oh, well, they must have been doing this. So th- that's kind of how I use those missing time frames. And if, if there is no information and it's just we don't know where they were, I just I, I keep it out because... It's it's better to have a profile as detailed or as not detailed as it may be. It's better to have a profile that just has accurate information. I can't get over um, how how many people we've had on lately that have just taught taught us so much about something that we wouldn't think was connected to Moore's case, and this is a great example of it. Thank you so much. No, oh, my pleasure. Yeah, actually, there was I mean there was one other thing I found interesting too when I was looking at uh, Moore's cases. The, the search that was conducted in July following her disappearance. Um, that search, it said that they did a, that law enforcement, you know, volunteers, they did a friend's family, they did a search, they had nearly 100 people and they did a search of a, a one mile radius around where she disappeared. And they were searching for a backpack. I found that interesting because, well, 
one, why are they searching for the backpack? Is there a reason that, you know, she left the backpack and didn't take it with her? Maybe, you know, it had alcohol in it. She didn't want to run with it, whatever it may be. Um, but what I found interesting is they spent one day doing that search, but a search of a one mile radius, which is about, it's about five square miles, just under four and a half, five, four and a half, but we'll call it five square miles. You know, doing that search with a hundred people would take, you know, I calculated it out. It'd take about 46 uh, search hours to do that search. And that's if every person is 20 feet apart. How are you going to find a backpack if you do that kind of search? So there was different components of the search as well that I just thought were, could have been better in my opinion. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.